Revolutions Per Minute is a weekly radio show from the New York City chapter of the Democratic Socialists of America, recorded live at WBAI 99.5 in Brooklyn every Tuesday at 5. RPM is about doing the work, the work to build a democratic socialist future. Every week, hear the latest news, analysis, and organizing experience from the minds and hearts of activists fighting every day in NYC. Join the movement at socialists.nyc. Yo, it's Good New York. You're listening to Revolutions Per Minute on WBAI 99.5 FM. We're a socialist radio show and podcast from members of the New York City Democratic Socialists of America. The DSA is the largest socialist organization in the United States, with approximately 56,000 members nationwide, and NYC DSA is its biggest chapter. We are run by our over 5,500 members and organizers who are working together to build democratic socialism in all five boroughs. ICE's reign of terror is tearing families apart as concentration camps of asylum seekers proliferate across the border. Trump has intensified the war on immigrants, but state violence directed against the workers of the world is a deeply rooted tradition of the American ruling class. Today, we're joined by Elijah Stevens and Britt Stern from the DSA Immigrant Justice Working Group, as well as Marvin Gonzalez, to discuss the collective struggle against the deportation apparatus and how we organize for the socialist horizon of a world with no borders. But first, briefly, the headlines brought to you by The Thorn. At the conclusion of the recount in court case in the race for Queens District Attorney, Tiffany Caban trailed by just 55 votes and conceded. The impact of her campaign has been felt throughout New York City, and the progressive coalition that backed her, including Queens DSA, is setting its sights on next year's races. The Queens machine continues to be at it, and also awarded a state Supreme Court seat to a judge who lost his civil court primary in June. Uh, our daily headlines are brought to you by The Thorn, an incredible weekly newsletter by NYC DSA Electoral Working Group, covering local politics and radical activism. Subscribe at thethorn.nyc. All right, so uh, after our, our more brief edition of the headlines today, we're just going to jump right into the episode and introducing our guests. Um, so we have Marvin Gonzalez, Elijah Stevens, and Britt Stern, and I'll start off with Marvin. So, like, what got you involved in the movement for socialism, and uh, why did you join DSA? I've been a part of um, socialist groups um, for over 10 years, and I, I thought that they played a very interesting part in transmitting a lot of historical and political uh, traditions across generations. But uh, what really attracted me to DSA in 2017, right after uh, the Donald Trump election, was that this was the first organization in my lifetime that I thought had real organizational capabilities to really change the world and really, um, really create a socialist program for the first time in generations. Yeah, I think you're uh, you're highlighting what I've heard from a lot of people who have joined us on the show, um, which is the a lot of people were attracted to DSA because they saw it building actual power and they uh, had a real chance of influencing um, the horrors that are happening on a daily basis. Elijah, uh, same question for you. Why did you join DSA? 
Yeah, um, well, you've had me on the show before, so I've given a bit of my backstory, but I don't assume that every one of your listeners has listened uh, every single time. So We're um, doing our best. <laughs> uh, I grew up in a lefty household, but, um, you know, the early, the late 90s and early 2000s weren't exactly uh, a time of a lot of social movement organizing. I went to a lot of Iraq war protests. Um, as a kid, but it was only when I um, moved to New York and um, realized that, uh, you know, just being like a leftist reading books didn't, that didn't actually do anything. Um, and so, um, and similar timeline to everybody else, I got involved sort of um, late summer um, after the end of the Bernie Sanders uh, campaign and then got really plugged in um, after Trump's election um, and immediately got involved in the immigrant justice working group because I didn't have a lot of organizing experience, but I did speak Spanish. And so it felt like um, the best place to plug in. Yeah, place that you could use your skills to uh, not just like talk about how terrible the world is all the time, which is uh, easy to do, but actually try and change material reality, which is what we're trying which to do. Which is hard to do, it turns <laughs> out. <laughs> you can't just, there's no magical um, incantation to bring about socialism, unfortunately. Um, so, uh, Britt, what about yourself? Why did you get involved in DSA? Um, yeah, my uh, trajectory is similar to Elijah's, I think. Um, yeah, I have, you know, I've been in New York, um, and I've been uh, practicing immigration law for about the past five years. Um, of course, with the election of Donald Trump, there was a lot more of a politicization of immigration, obviously, a lot more focus on that. It became something that came up for me all the time. You know, what do you do? I'm an immigration attorney. And I saw people's reactions being so different than what I had always aligned with and what I felt what my work was about. So I just kind of started doing a deep dive into you know, what is it that I believe in and why am I, you know, in this work? And that's when I sort of found ESA. And then I also from there started to look at, um, saw the immigrant justice working group and uh, wanted to really become more involved in that and their work. Um, so, yeah, what uh, you're highlighting there and what Elijah also brought up is how um, people saw, especially with Trump being elected, that um, immigration was this critical front of struggle. Right. Uh, and recently, both uh, here in New York in June and um, a week and a half ago down in Atlanta, um, NYC DSA and then um, DSA um, nationally has endorsed open borders. So we've declared um, this as a priority for our organization. So like, um, why is it so critical for us as socialists to organize for immigrant justice? Um, I mean, so immigrant justice is sort of at the forefront of, of the struggle for uh, international working class rights and, um, and the working class movement. Um, and so um, because um, immigrants are often the frontline communities, both, you know, geographically in, in uh, against climate change, um, we see with refugee crises, um, but also because they are the frontline uh, in, uh, you know, Trump's war on the poor. Um, and so I think that's why it's really important for if we are if we have solidarity um, and if we are a working class movement, then that is 
immigrants, and so that's why this struggle is um, a, a socialist struggle. It is like workers of the world unite as um, – even though you see some people who claim to be leftists on Twitter seem to think that borders somehow protect workers, even though history has uh, shown it to be the exact opposite case as a way to for the ruling class to divide and conquer. Mm-hmm. Um, so I guess before we dive into the work that DSA is doing now, as well as the kind of horrors that are being perpetuated on immigrants um, through Trump's regime, uh, first, we just want to talk about what borders actually are like, and how they emerged as a mechanism for the capitalist class to dominate the international working class. Britt, you want to have a go at this one? Yeah, I know sure. I'm giving you a really big <laughs> <laughs> theoretical yeah. question. Yeah, um, it's, it is a big topic, and there's many different uh, answers, of course. But um, So, I mean, borders are uh, – they um, – you know, they're a boundary that is a delineation of a political sovereign entity or a legal jurisdiction. But as you mentioned, it's also been used as this sort of policy tool. Um, you know, even though borders are usually somehow they're geographical or they're cultural, they're also a result of policy decisions that have been made, and uh, they aren't natural in any in any sense that, um, you know, they aren't necessarily natural. Um, so I think that, um, you know, where you're born then confers on on someone, you know, different rights in different places. And with the emergence of uh, the freedom of capital to move into internationally, um, we've seen the ramping up of border enforcement to restrict people's rights to uh, move freely. So that's sort of, you know, capital's interest has always been in uh, ex- exploiting labor as much as as much as possible, obviously, obviously to uh, enhance profits. Um, so that that has mean that has meant to in destabilize uh, anyone, anyone's ability to be here so that it, you know, it, it divides the working class and uh, focuses our attention on on those struggles instead of the larger international solidarity that we're trying to create. Yeah, I think uh, what always really comes to mind, I think when you're talking about this, like how borders we perceive them as these like natural functions, even though right. like for anyone with like even a, a drop of like a knowledge about American history would understand that the the borders that we have are the byproduct of conquering land from other people. This uh, oftentimes this land that was held in common as well, and transforming right. it into um, a system for profit, and that this was done through war and plunder and genocide, and that when we if we're going to talk about this, you can't just like erase right. the history of what really happened. And this was about consolidating and projecting empire. Right. Yeah. Um, so Greg Grandin is a historian and writer who has written a lot on um, borders and empire. And he has a book called The End of the Myth in which he sort of outlines um, this idea that 
borders are sort of the latest stage in um, the imperialist project, and that after um, at the end of the project of westward expansion, um, when you know there was free, basically no borders, and pe- um, immigrants were uh, encouraged to come to the U.S. to basically um, serve as tools of um, white colonization um, of the country um, and be used for free labor. Um, we we saw at, as sort of that project was completed, a closing of the borders through very explicit um, racialized um, and politicized and class um, restrictions like the Chinese Exclusion Act of 1882. Um, sort of in, in thinking about this show today, I was reading some of his writing, and one thing he raised was that um, the first border, um, the actual physical border wall in the US um, was built with um, recycled materials from the Japanese internment camps. And I think that's really uh, stunning symbolism of the way that um, this project has been used to um, reinforce uh, racial and class categorizations and to sort of make it so that there is always a, uh, a class of people that can be exploited for their labor. Yeah, and I think when we talk about the imperial nature of borders, I think we also need to talk about how it's a development of the nation state, right? When we say that these things are not natural, that it's also very new. Um, for a long time, um, we didn't have these highly delineated, highly militarized, contained nation states. So we have to analyze, like, why are these nation states developing? Why are they becoming so congealed? And what what does that form look like? Um, and what are its effects on, like, the imperial and global nature of capital? Yeah, I, I, I think, well, everyone is bringing up some really great points. And then, like, on the, the subject of, like, nation-state formation, I think, uh, as, um, well, what Elijah mentioned before, the Chinese Exclusion Act, I think it's really critical to mention that the first um, act of creating immigration quotas was explicitly racist. And that the border regime and the deportation apparatus have been about one like maintaining this construct of white supremacy and this hierarchy of whiteness within American society as well as um, what happened at the similar time was that people could be targeted for deportation if they were leftists if they were communist or anarchist uh, even someone like uh, Emma Goldman who was born in the United States at the age of two was deported for being an anarchist so it's always been this political project about um, establishing racial hierarchies as well as eliminating threats to uh, multiracial working class organizing. Mm-hmm. So this has been so, and that um, process is, I feel like, so critical in the construction of nation states, particularly in the West in general. Yeah, um, just quickly, another thing to recognize is that while we think of the border as an increasingly um, strict thing that keeps people out, um, it's also been tactically used um, to let enough people in to provide an ample labor force, um, but a weak labor force who is always under threat of deportation and detention and uh, has less ability to organize um, because they are um, temporary workers, because they are immigrants, um, because they don't have full citizenship. And 
so um, what, um, capitalists are totally fine with there being um, a certain amount of uh, immigrants coming in because it provides them with a weak labor force. Yeah, I think that even though borders are definitely a nativist and white, white supremacist project, um, there's also this tension at the heart of it, which is that um, there is this need for, for capital to exploit labor and to gain new markets for labor. And earlier, I, we were, um, Britt and I and Elijah were talking about uh, how at the same time that the uh, Chinese Exclusion Act happened, there was also a push for um, more Mexican immigration into the, the U.S., yeah, it, um, at the time of the Chinese Exclusion Act is when you get um, much more immigration moving up from um, Mexico. So the only reason why that sort of nativist pushback was allowed by capital um, is because there was another source of this labor that could could come in um, to the to to support you know all of the in industrialization that was going on. I think. Um Something that just happened that really highlights what you guys are all talking about in terms of how borders are weaponized against labor and manipulated by capital is what happened down in Mississippi, right. where you have these 670 workers rounded up, thrown into cages. Um, some were released the next day, but still it's absurd to be throwing someone in a cage in general. Um but they were punished. They, terror was unleashed on them. But the boss, the person who is profiting off of getting around the system, faced no punishment whatsoever. Everything was fine for him. And I don't, we don't have to embrace a, a logic of punishment, but I think it just really demonstrates the way that like, things are happening now is that it's they'll like politicians, right wing politicians who are acting on behalf of capital will it'll dangle something in front of your face of, of workers that, oh, we're on your side. See, we're we're trying to keep out the workers that are keeping your wages low when they don't care about that whatsoever. Um, yeah, I will say that. Um, so economic sanctions is something that people are talking about, sort of um, fines for the bosses who, um, you know, employed undocumented labor. Um, and that while it's I, I will be the first in line to punish bosses. Um, <laughs> economic sanctions against um, people who employ undocumented laborers has shown to be not useful because um, they will always just be willing to pay the fines and keep um, exploiting um, uh, undocumented workers. Um, I mean, this is why we organize as socialists. This is why we um, see it as not punishing individual bosses. We need to um, strengthen unions, mm -hmm. and we need to uh, so that and we need to um, decriminalize border crossings and and push for an open borders policy so that uh, all people can organize. And what's interesting is not that the the bosses weren't just punished is to think about how that raid may have specifically been used as a tool for the bosses to disrupt some of the organizing that was happening in that community yeah i think it's very crucial to mention that that was like a unionized factory which in the south is extremely rare the south is 
one of the least unionized places, not like it in the United States is the, has the lowest rate of unionization, but it's the, one of the least unionized places in the world. I, I mean that one of those poultry processing plants was literally, it was an organized workforce who, um, they had had a settlement of three, um, $0.25 million from the company because of harassment, uh, sexual harassment and workplace harassment, uh, discrimination, uh, targeting of Latino workers. So it seems pretty clear that it was retaliation. Yeah, I mean, I, and that makes perfect sense considering um, that we have both a, a boss and a sexual predator as the head of of our executive branch. Um, So I just, uh, before we dive into the organizing that's happening right now, I think it's really important to talk about why people are actually fleeing their homes in in Central America. And um, like the role that U.S. imperialism had in unleashing this um, refugee crisis um, in the first place. So Marvin, uh, like, is it a mere coincidence that the U.S. began further militarizing the border following Reagan's dirty wars and NAFTA? And I mean, it, this history goes back even further than that, if you want to dive on. I, I mean, absolutely not. Um, there's been decades and decades of U.S. intervention in Latin America, um, beginning, especially in Central America, beginning with um, Guatemala in 1954. Uh, the U.S. intervened after a 10-year uh, revolution that saw Guatemala have its first democracy and probably its only democracy um, until 1996. Uh, this was the beginning of um Invasion after invasion that uh, you know culminated in Nicaragua, uh, El Salvador, and recently in Honduras. Um, you know, you mentioned Reagan, but it's important to point out that uh, El Salvador began in 1979 under Jimmy Carter's regime. So there is cross-party um, consensus on the way that uh, the U.S. should intervene in Latin America and. Um, most recently, um, under Barack Obama's regime, you know, in Guatemala, uh, not, sorry, not in Guatemala, in Honduras, uh, Manuel Zelaya um, was ousted. Uh, the U.S. refused to call it a coup, even though he, um, you know, soldiers took him out of his house in his pajamas and forced, forcibly exiled him. And not only that, the Secretary of State then, uh, Hillary Clinton, uh, um, organized with other Latin American countries to prevent his return. And... Um, Zelaya for a long time was just thought of as a left liberal and um, up until a certain point he started um, he started moving more to the left uh, especially with more of the pink tide in the Bolivarian movement and that was seen as, as a threat to to U.S. hegemony in that region um, not just by you know capitalists but also by the Democratic Party. Yeah and I think it's um, in addition to that there's like this very like there's very specific things that have like developments that have occurred that have increased the violence, um, both obviously these interventions in these wars um, uh, and like the way that they've occurred in the sense that like the leaders of the cartels and the or or like the descendants um, were trained at the U.S. School of the Americas and not just the cartels, but the dictatorships all through across Central and South America. And these 
dictatorships and these cartels have unleashed massive amounts of violence. And these um, regimes, whether we're talking about on the government scale or these kind of um, almost like neo-feudal drug empires that are deeply intertwined in both U.S. empire and the international finance system. It's constantly happening where you discover that like uh, the cartels have been uh, kind of They've been laundering hundreds of billions of dollars through uh, international financial institutions, and they the financial institutions are just given a slap on the wrist because everyone in the ruling class just knows that how is business is handled. Um, so it's also, no, jump in. Um, it's also you know part of that conversation is also just the fact that the increased militarization of the border, which has happened since you know the eighties, you know makes it more. Uh, more uh, lucrative for these for the drug cartels, you know, um, and entrenches it further. Uh, Yeah, I mean, there's it's people have noted how interesting it is that El Paso is deemed like one of the safest cities uh, in the country, but you know, right across the border, um, it's one of the the most dangerous. And we have to ask why if. Right. The border is a direct res- um, result of that. I mean, the border is what causes that um, that sort of juxtaposition, and then it's it's a, because capitalists need to create very real and very like juridical distinctions of workers, um, and we see that uh, at the border. Yeah, we've the um, U.S. ruling class has created a world in which there are no borders for capital or its imperial apparatus, but there are militarized, harsh borders for labor more than ever in human history. Yeah, I mean, I think that sort of exactly touches on the other side of the political intervention is the capital intervention, is the the free trade agreements of NAFTA, the North American Free Trade Agreement, and CAFTA, the Central American Free Trade Agreement. And so those very specifically put in policies across um, across North and Central America to allow this free trade, uh, free flow of capital, uh, open borders for capital, but not for people. Um, and it's no, it's no coincidence, as as everybody has said, that border restrictions and immigration restrictions have gone hand in hand with the opening of uh, of markets and trade um, that have. D- utterly devastated um, rural and agrarian communities across Central America and Mexico. And and just to add, there's also, with that also comes the attempt to regulate um, how labor will then enter the United States. And so we get programs like domestic worker programs, which are just um, capitalist programs to try to... to, um, be the ones who determine the prayer, uh, the criteria for workers join, um, coming into the states. Yeah, and I think um, in terms of NAFTA, which really highlights the the manner in which uh, this notion of like free markets is something that just like happens in, with through competition and not through uh, state directed policy, is such an absurdical f- farce. Um, is the sense that. It was designed specifically to spread U.S. agribusiness in Mexico and to destroy the small peasant agriculture um, in Mexico. And this has directly resulted 
in mass migration to the United States. So you are listening to Revolutions Per Minute on listener-sponsored WBAI, broadcasting in New York City at 99.5 FM and streaming on your favorite podcast app. To connect with us after the show, you can email us at revolutionsnyc at gmail.com or sign up for our newsletter to get links to what we talk about on the show. You can do that at our website, revolutionsperminute.simplecast.com, and you can also find us on Twitter, at NYCRPM. Today, we are talking about the um, border, uh, the terror that is being unleashed by the American ruling class against the international working class, and our socialist horizon of a world without borders. Um, so now we want to kind of dip into the the work that DSA is doing organizing against um, the state's violence uh, against the working people of the world. And so like what sort of organizing has DSA Immigrant Justice Working Group been engaged in over the past few years and what uh, types of tactics and strategies have been utilized uh, in this struggle? Yeah, so um, so first and foremost, I mean, organizing around immigration issues is uh, very challenging. I mean, organizing around many issues is challenging, but um, immigration, particularly because um, you're, you're, you, the enemy you're facing is um, these federal, uh, undemocratic, uh, untransparent, um, heavily militarized uh, police force um, in ICE and CBP. Um, and so the sort of strategy we've taken is how can we intervene on the local and state level um, to make our communities safer for immigrants? Um, so we've done uh, a lot of different kinds of work, some sort of base building oriented work around trying to expand sanctuary on the local level. Um, and the, the big campaign that we uh, have done in the last year and uh, a half was um, to end ICE courthouse arrests. Um, in uh, New York, after Trump was elected, ICE turned um, to uh, picking on people who were going to court um, and making arrests both outside the court and inside the courts. Um, and so we took up a campaign along with uh, other organizations throughout the city um, to fight back against this. Initially, this campaign was focused on sort of awareness raising in the general community because it was not known about to most people. Um, and then uh, canvassing and petition gathering to try and put pressure on the court system um, to change their policies to require ICE to carry a warrant. We've seen across the board that um, the best, one of the best ways to um, push back against ICE is to um, uh, is to make them have a warrant um, and. Um, and that wasn't necessary for them to do these courthouse arrests. So we were pressuring for that and then lobbying for legislation on the state level um, that would formalize that policy. Um, we, we, were, um, we weren't able to get that legislation passed, but in, the, in that fight, we were actually able to get the court system to adopt a new policy um, to um, require warrants for ICE um, in making courthouse arrests. And that has uh, led to a a drastic drop in the number of courthouse arrests um and so that's that's really exciting um so that's some of the sort of interventions we've done um and i'm sure other people have other things to bring into the play 
Yeah, I mean, it's, I mean, it's really um, great to see like that work have an effective payoff because, you know, organizing doesn't always end with a success. And while the legislation didn't pass, um, we and we covered uh, more in detail this organizing campaign in a previous episode that aired back in May. If uh, any of our listeners haven't heard that and want to check that out, um, but. Raising awareness and also having a direct result where now there are less courthouse arrests is a really um, productive gain. And then uh, it's not just been over this past summer, um, but um, over the summer in particular, there's been an increase in direct actions um, targeting both ICE facilities and the corporations that profit off of their terror. And the DSA has been engaged in these actions, as well as other groups um, such as Cosecha and the Never Again Action Network. And it's been very powerful to see so many comrades put their bodies on the line against state violence. Uh, So, like, what do you see as, like, the strategic purpose of these tactics? How does direct action um, build power against the imperial capitalist state? And is there revolutionary potential in these defensive measures against state violence? Um, so I think we've seen, uh, I was at this action on Saturday where over um, probably nearly 100 uh, people um, from many different organizations, including many people who were not, um, you know, organizing in an organization, um, got arrested, um, putting their bodies on the line, uh, specifically this line being the um, the West Side Highway, all eight lanes blocking traffic for um about 40 minutes um, uh, demanding the the closure of ICE detention camps um, and the abolition of ICE. Um, And I think that we are seeing why we are seeing a huge rise in direct action and mass mobilization against um, these really awful, inhumane immigration policies um, at more than basically any other movement right now um that as a tactic um is a way of showing um like real solidarity against um a system that we we don't really have other ways to uh implement pressure on um as as i was sort of saying one of the challenges um being that we're facing a really undemocratic force we can even uh do things like try and um, limit budget on uh, like spending on ICE and CBP, but we see that um, Trump can implement you know national emergencies and then implement um, his own discretionary spending that way. Um, and so, I think people have turned to uh, direct action as one of the few viable ways left to intervene in an un- truly undemocratic um, system. Um, and I think it does have revolutionary potential. I think it shows other people um, what it takes um, to speak out. Um, yeah, I don't know if other people have thoughts on that. Yeah, I think that um, I was also at the action on Saturday, uh, the uh, close the camps action, and I did not uh, get arre- I didn't get arrested. There was training that went on for people to do that um but i will say that i think being a part of that and seeing that happen being a part of the march was uh inspiring in a way that um i think that you know these are these are small actions you know we saw another one uh in uh an amazon uh 
store that uh, people also got arrested. So I think that it shows solidarity that's that's happening and people are aware and people are moved to do something to stand up for, you know, our immigrant communities and, you know, the larger uh, working uh, communities that we have. So I think that the revolutionary power might is in that, you know, the starting. And I think that also, you know, the direct actions, the strikes are always been the things that have gotten the gotten these larger things done. And it's sort of, you know, what we sort of need to start organizing to do. Yeah, I, I, I don't know if there's, you know, revolutionary potential, but I think that in any revolution, like the question is, can like can life go on as it has? And I think it's inspiring to see all of these comrades, you know, really put their bodies on the line to say, as there are concentration camps on the border, as people are dying all over the world, that no, life cannot go on as it is going. And I think that that might be the seed of something revolutionary. Yeah, it, is, it throws like a wrench into like the imperial presidency in a certain sense that it disrupts the functioning of an undemocratic apparatus and really the only way that we can. And crucially, it just raises uh, consciousness among people. I think especially when like corporations like Amazon are targeted in these efforts, it really highlights um, to people how like these um, these like clean corporations that like to present themselves as like away from exploitation, even though obviously someone like Amazon is like one of the most brutal economic exploiters in the world are deeply integrated into state violence that like a lot of the money that they make is so um, rooted in that. And so we've been like primarily talking about um, what we're organizing against but like, what are we building towards as socialists? What are open borders? And how does it translate workers of the world unite from an ideal to a material reality? Marvin, is this one that uh, you'd like to take? Um, sure. I, I guess, first of all, you know, I have a little different story than Elijah and Britt. Uh, I haven't really been a part of the immigrant justice working group. I've been a part of more of labor struggles in New York City. And as I was partaking in those things, one things that I really started to understand is that how important it was to understand immigrant justice, uh, the intersection between immigrant justice and labor. Um, a lot of the projects that uh, NYCDSA took on, um, like BNH, which I think, in my opinion, is a classic example of a runaway shop, uh, and also with Tomcat Bakery, which has happened after uh, there was an I 9 audit, which is when um, DHS uh, and ICE come and say, um, question the criteria for workers. Um, I think that, that that really kind of radicalized me in understanding labor and immigrant justice, ju immigrant justice as really intertwined. Um, so I, I, with the help of immigrant justice, went to, um, went to Tijuana um, to do a border solidarity work. And it, it really just kind of set, set it home for me that um, borders are violence. Borders kill people. Um, borders separate people. Uh, I was on a march um, from INS, uh, sorry, uh, INM, uh, the immigration uh, agency in, in Tijuana, uh, to the consulate. And 
even there, like there were highly militarized um, soldiers, and the people there were afraid. This was right after um, a lot of them had been uh, assaulted uh, at the border, and it it just became so clear to me that the violence is very real here. Yeah, borders are not abstract. That they their purpose is to divide and conquer, and only way to do that is to hurt people. Yeah, and I would say that sort of to get back to your question, like this as a open borders as a vision, I think one of the challenges of doing immigration work is it's often been a uh, a, a reactive str- struggle from a defensive position, responding to. Uh, mass violence, really, like these raids, I I don't think we can downplay um, the fact that um, that um, something like uh, the shooting in El Paso, which is explicitly targeting, um, uh, you know, immigrants um, is very parallel to um, the mass raid in Mississippi. And I'm stealing from a, a, a a piece that came out in the Baffler today that compared the two. From but, a comrade of ours. <laughs> yes. Um, but um, uh, so I, I think that um, in response to that defensive position, it's really time that we offered a positive vision, even if it's a lofty goal. Um, we, we, we're not going to move forward um, if unless we offer a positive vision. And I think that Open Borders uh, does that. And I, I would like to see, and I think the others here would like to see this become sort of the, the Green New Deal or the Medicare for All for the immigrant justice movement. Yeah, and I think the um, step that NYC DSA and DSA National took at their conventions of declaring this as our vision, as our horizon, was a, a great step in the right direction. But like, how do we reach this horizon? I don't think anyone has the complete answer here. That would be um, ridiculous. But like, what role does like something like demilitarization play in the opening of borders? And um, I mean, I think it, demilitarization is a step uh, along the way. I mean, I think. Yeah, if we, it's sort of we can politicize people around specific policy goals, um, around showing that um, the 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 border is uh, very falsely constructed and um, and has existed in its current form for a very brief time in history. And so, if we harken back to, to that history, um, while we are also trying to um, decrease. Um, both the the actual physical infrastructure and the um, the police and military presence at um, the border, I think that is a clear way of um, sort of transforming um, the vision for what um, nations and borders are. I also think that there's been a really um, a lopsided, uh, you know, sort of evolution of what's happened with the militarization of the border. You know, it really began in this in, you know, under Reagan, where there was this exchange that was made for, you know, border security funding and then amnesty. Um, But really what we've seen is that there's been no headway made on, you know, dreamers or, you know, uh, we haven't had any uh, headway made for immigrant rights. And we've just had the border security uh, really run amok. Um, so I think that the demilitarization of it, you know, is is of course going to, you know, help re rebalance that. I mean, um, or 
tip the balance the other way. And uh, immigration was originally like long, long time ago housed under uh, the Labor Department, right? So I think that there's something we need to talk about what it means that uh, I, that the ICE was restructured under the Department of Homeland Security. Why are why is immigration considered a sort of a terrorist, um, why is it being conflated with like th things like terrorism and, and violence, right? Yeah, I think it, it shows the, the way that the Imperial Project has like been remaking itself after the war on terror and after kind of the, which is really just this crisis of American empire that is continually reproducing more and more violence across the globe. And I think by politicizing the border and making a declaration of open borders, we can make more people in this country realize that the enemy isn't on the outside. It's coming from inside the house, that the capitalist class is here. And if you want your life to be better, then you need to organize against them and build power. So you have been, you are listening to um, Revolutions Per Minute on listener-sponsored WBAI in New York City, broadcasting at 99.5 FM and streaming on your favorite podcast app. To connect with us after the show, you can email us at revolutionsnyc at gmail.com or sign up for our newsletter to get links to what we talk about on our show. You can do that at our website, revolutionsperminute.simplecast.com. You can also find us on Twitter at NYCRPM. Today, we're talking about um, the struggle for immigrant justice and for open borders. And we have around 10 minutes left in the show. So this time, um, we want to open the phone lines and hear from our listeners. Um, and you can call in at 212-209-2877. Again, please call us at 212-209-2877. So... Um, before, as our phone lines are opening, uh, just like what are some like tactics and strategies that are in consideration um, in order to build uh, both this like consciousness of uh, like f around how like immigrants are part of the working class and building like immigrant worker power itself? Yeah, I mean, so I mean, there's a couple things, especially around sort of uh, illuminating what open borders could be um, is talking about specific policy prescriptions like um, demilitarization of the border or decriminalization of border crossing. Um, that's a huge thing. Um, but also um, just political education around this border violence that, you know, we've talked about on the radio here, but also just bringing this to, um, you know, our communities and um, the people in our lives. And because I think the, the idea of borders has become so ingrained in people's consciousness. Um, so that's one thing. But also, like, we do have to turn back to local policy stuff and local and local struggles. Um, so these legislative fights will continue. Um, direct actions sh can and will continue. We're looking to there's um, another um, another big direct action being planned for September. Um, with the if like close the camps nyc who organized this last one um and folks can check out close the camps nyc.com there's a national mobilization planned for october um and so i think you're going to see an escalation of these direct action techniques but also things like community defense um and projects and community resiliency so um sanctuary um but also things like uh 
the hate-free zones that um, groups uh, like the Desi's Rising Up and Moving um, have established to um, build community resiliency amongst immigrant communities. And with the open resolution, um, the open borders resolution that we pass, we are, we are going to see DSA, you know, ramp up. It's sort of asking uh, people who are running for office to really support this. This is something that we are really going to uh, start pushing both locally here in New York City and just across the country. Yeah, and I think it's uh, it's often like misconstrued as something that would scare people off. But I think if it's when it's presented in a way that really frames the discussion around how borders, especially as people see what's happening right now, people are, I'd, I'd say most people in this country are horrified about what's happening down at the border. And that is something um, useful for us on our end. Obviously, it's horrible and we wish it wasn't happening, but it's a way that we can highlight how this is inherent to how the system functions and that the system itself is the problem and if we we don't have to shy away from having politicians center this in uh, their discussions, they don't need to like play a game with the right because the right, if you start playing a game with them, they will find a way to stab you in the back. Mm-hmm. So I just want to remind our listeners that the phone lines are open. That's two one two two zero nine two eight seven seven. Again, it's two one two two zero nine two eight seven seven. So, like, beyond, like, explain what, like, the hate-free zones would be for people. Uh, so this is not really my area of expertise. We have our immigrant justice working group has not gotten involved in these, but it, it really is about building community resilience um, and, and, and community-based solidarity um, so that people can sort of undo um, these regimes of requiring ICE intervention or feeling like they need to call the police. Um, And so um, building up that community solidarity as an alternative way of uh, interacting and and building community. Yeah, one thing also that um, is not so much related, I guess, to that, but just in terms of strategy and uh, political education, local organizing, I think one of the things that came out of the action on Saturday is that there um, COSECHA is starting to organize or, um, I guess, educate the people in the building uh, that are also, so ICE is housed in um, on the Westside Highway in this office building. Um, they're there with, it's a big office building with other tenants, and they're sort of doing work to educate the people in that building that ICE is operating there and sort of to put pressure on the uh, the the building to uh you know i should probably not should not be allowed to operate uh if they're you know uh inflicting terror on our communities so and i think that gets at sort of what a lot of these strategic interventions are doing when we say you know the border we have to recognize that that border is not just uh geographically located at the u.s mexico border it's everywhere and that border violence is happening across our country so things like um uh the laundry workers center um is doing an action um to um that's focused on greyhound buses and border patrol is often picking up people at greyhound bus on greyhound buses um and so um and and that gets at it the fact that um 
the Border Patrol operates in a jurisdiction that's a hundred mile radius from any port uh, of entry to the U.S. Um, and that doesn't just include the borders, that includes um, seaports and airports. Um, and so that, that basic, the map of that is basically the entire country. So CBP and mm -hmm. ICE have jurisdiction everywhere, which is why we have to, you know, emphasize that the border is in so many places. And that, so that's why an open borders um, framework, can, all these other policies around um, demilitarizing the border and, um, and abolishing ICE fit under that framework. Yeah, I think like that this, the border has spread everywhere because what it really is is a mechanism for like increasing the power of the state to um, like put terror in the minds of working people and to undermine solidarity across the country. And I think everything that um, like you've all been discussing really demonstrates like how this intersects with so many other issues, like in terms of like if if someone can just like come, if a government agency can just like come into the apartment complex that you live without like any real authorization or at least any, um, th it reveals how there's like no democratic control over like our housing for so many people where we live and how um, we need to be fighting for immigrants in those spaces and for all the tenants who live in those spaces because the uh, undemocratic ownership nature of housing empowers the state to inflict more violence on working people. I mean, the public charge rule that just came out yeah. yesterday gets at that exactly, this idea that um, that immigrants uh, are being limited from get access to any social services. The public charge rule is, is rooted historically in the same things like the Chinese Exclusion Act. It was to, um, it was to keep um, poor working class immigrants um, out of, uh, you know, uh, the the social welfare system and and exclude them from the public and uh, and then used as a weapon to deport them. And so, yeah, that is why it's really important that, you know, we are doing this work in the immigrant justice working group. Um, so this tends to be focused specifically on immigration policy. But that's what makes it exciting that we're organizing in this wider socialist movement for things like uh, Medicare for all, housing for all, uh, a Green New Deal, because these issues are all deeply intrinsically related and we have to articulate the fact that we are fighting for rights for everybody, regardless of citizenship status, regardless of country that they live in or have lived in, and that this ha is a, you know, an international struggle. I think that's an incredible way to frame it and a great way to wrap up the episode unless anyone has any final thoughts they want to add. Um, all right. Well, you have been listening to I Want Respect with Chris Cuomo. Now, just <laughs> <laughs> I have to throw a little dig at the corporate media when you're here on WBAI. But uh, my heart. <laughs> um, yeah, we're, we're going to be covering the uh, the uh, revolution in Cuba in uh, 1959. <laughs> I know you, uh, you've been listening to um, Revolutions Per Minute on listener-sponsored WBAI in New York City, broadcasting at 99.5 FM and streaming on your favorite podcast app. Um, you can connect with us after the show at revolutionsnyc at gmail or sign up for a newsletter to what we talk about. Um, 
You can do that at revolutionsperminute.simplecast.com. And you can also find us at Twitter at NYCRPM. Um, we're going to sign off, but we'll see you next week. Thanks for joining can us. Can I just quickly plug that we've got the Immigrant Justice Working Group monthly meeting. The next one is Monday, September 9th um, at, from 6.30 to 8.30 p.m. Um, and that's at socialists.nyc. And you can always reach out to us at immigrant.justice at socialists.nyc. Dot NYC. Perfect. Uh, all right. Well, thank you for joining us and thank you to our listeners as always.